So the NHL has been rolling out these reverse retro jerseys. It was the Carolina Hurricanes turn on Friday, so they changed their profile picture on Twitter, paying homage to their roots and the Hartford Whalers. Not everyone loving the move, the Hartford Yard Goats. Double-A affiliate of the Rockies had their Twitter fingers working. They changed their profile pic to the Hurricanes' current logo. Little shade thrown. Uh, the Whalers moving to Carolina after the 96-97 season, and apparently there's still some hurt feelings. Kenny, I've been in Connecticut for just under two years now. I see that Whalers gear everywhere still, even though the team's not even around. The passion for them, but these fans still clearly there, and these fans don't forget, especially when your team is ripped away. Yeah, I know the feeling. It would be like if the Thunder put the space needle on a throwback jersey. Twitter blew up about this hockey deal for many of the Hartford Whalers faithful. It was taken as a nice tribute, but for others, as Nabil was saying, it was a painful reminder of a team taking away. Uh, Joining us now is hockey lover from in the crease, Linda Cohn. You came here before me and said, I'm sure you attended those Whaler games. Who's responsible? Was was this a diss or was this respect? Which way do you see it? This is total respect. Come on, move on. Listen, I love the state of Connecticut. I spent, as you know, so many years hosting Sports Center in the state of Connecticut, raising my children in the state of Connecticut. I feel the pain. It was sad when the Whalers left Hartford, but they had no choice. It was a business deal. I love these reverse retro jerseys by Carolina. It was a wonderful to see that on the ice. And not only that, it's paying homage to your history. This is a good thing. You don't want to erase your history. You want to shine a light on it and show people where you were born, where the magic began, Kenny and Nabil. There is nothing wrong with these jerseys. And if I'm Carolina, let me tell you, I'm going to make sure I'm wearing that more than a couple of times this season. I'm with Linda. I like them. I look at that logo more and more, and Kenny, we should get jerseys on your tab, though. All right, just keep the space needle off the thunder. Linda, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey now, how are you, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. It's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We appreciate you stopping on by and downloading us, putting us in your earbuds. However you are uh, ingesting this week's uh, proceedings, we uh, cannot thank you Enough, and we're back into the fun story of, yes, the Hartford Whalers, the best-selling non-existent team jersey in the National Hockey League. Yes, despite the fact that the Hartford Whalers are now approaching almost 25 years of not being in Hartford, but be reconstituted as the uh, Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, the Hartford Whalers, the mythology and the history, the legacy, the warm, fuzzy feelings all of those things still completely resonate, uh, not only in, in Connecticut and the Hartford region, but uh, among hockey fans uh, generally and, uh, frankly, around the world. Uh, th- this is a jersey, not unlike the New York Cosmos soccer jersey, uh, that uh, can be seen despite teams not li- existing anymore. Uh, worldwide, there's just a fandom for this team, and we're going to get into uh, why that, uh, that mythology sort of exists uh, with our guest this week, Pat Pickens, who has uh, a new book coming out, uh, literally just came out a couple of days ago as we dropped this episode. 
Uh, it is uh, uh, the first book devoted to the history and the uh, the story of the of the whalers. And the story is uh, it's called the whalers: the rise, fall, and enduring mystique. Good word, mystique, of New England's second, in parentheses, greatest NHL franchise. And uh, Pat's going to kind of get into uh, a little bit of the story of to how he came to uh, to find uh, this book that uh, he couldn't find the book, so he wrote it himself. That's the old adage, and uh, he certainly came, came through. A 10-year odyssey to put this book together. And we'll find out why and how and, and the reasons and the rationale behind all of it. Uh, but obviously, it's the story about the, uh, the whalers. It's something that we've nibbled at. Uh, a bit in previous episodes, uh, we certainly highly commend either prior to listening to this episode or as a supplement to it, uh, a couple of episodes, uh, two in particular, uh, Jerry and Peter, the Whaler guys, episode number 62. I think they're still going at it with their TV show and in that sort of ongoing hope that uh, somehow Hartford will be uh, made whole again with another NHL franchise or the return of the Whalers somehow, some way. And of course, our extraordinary interview with the great Howard Baldwin in our episode number 100. He, the originator of this franchise back in the WHA uh, New England Whaler days. And hopefully we get uh, Howard back on the show to go deeper into some of the other exploits uh, that we didn't get to in our first episode with him. Uh, but those are highly recommended for your listening pleasure. In addition to this one, we are going to find uh, a treasure trove of fun uh, uh, stories and some anecdotes and a couple little pieces of, uh, of information and info, uh, that, uh, you didn't know about before. And, uh, you got to get this book. It's, it's terrifically written, uh, and it gets into whole bunches of things, not only the history of the, of the franchise in Hartford and it's a Rocky, uh, exit, shall we say, uh, to not even directly to Raleigh, but to Greensboro, North Carolina for two years and why it ended up there. And uh, the frankly still relatively sore subject that you could sort of understand in that clip uh, that we just played to you, a, a little ESPN dalliance uh, back in, uh, gee, I think it was last year. Uh, no, it was earlier this year in, in uh, December of uh, 21, December, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, February. That's Get, get your year straight, Tim. Gee whiz. February 19th, uh, 2021. That was a little Sports Center segment featuring Kenny Main. Uh, Nabil Karim and uh, uh, Linda Cohn, uh, reminiscing a little bit about uh, the Hartford Whalers and uh, really kind of putting their finger on the the, the hot button of uh, the nostalgia around it. And shall we call it the appropriation of the Whalers uh, legacy, logo and all, uh, by the Carolina Hurricanes, which if you've been following sort of the um, uh, the story of their existence, uh, when they moved to Carolina, it was a complete whitewash, right? The, the Hartford Whalers were very much in the rearview mirror. Uh, the team had moved. Uh, there were various reasons, a lot of, of course, financial and economic. Uh, and, uh, you know, the NHL uh, in its uh, own sort of way, right, trying to uh, keep moving southern and westward. Uh, and in Carolina, right, a completely new branding and uh, you would never have known, frankly, that uh, the team had been previously domiciled, uh, shall we say. But a couple of years ago, strangely, interestingly, curiously, uh, some of the newer management types there uh, starting to uh, 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 find something in the attic uh, during the move that uh, 
that that actually uh, poured, uh, portended uh, or pointed to some history prior. And this Hartford Whalers thing kind of g- came out of mothballs and was uh, resurrected and embraced. And some would cynically say for for profit and, and, and dollars. Um, you know, they're not dumb, I guess, in terms of recognizing the uh, the sales of jerseys and and uh, memorabilia around the Hartford Whalers still strong these 20 some odd years afterwards. Uh, after the move to Carolina, and a resurrection, if you will, and a and a, a seemingly uh, abrupt rediscovery of the Hartford Whalers team and logo and jersey and all that kind of stuff. And that segment, that SportsCenter segment, kind of touches on it, right? It's is this a good thing? Uh, is it kind of a diss to Hartford and kind of a kick in the in the the groin, so to speak? Um, or is it or is it a, a positive development in that? Hey, it's the history of this team. And uh, a callback, frankly, to probably for a generation of fans uh, in Carolina now or NHL fans generally who didn't even know about this Hartford Whalers uh, existence, let alone uh, its origins in the world, this thing called the World Hockey Association prior. Um, So, I mean, I think the debate kind of rages on. And I think, frankly, the debate even in Connecticut about how the team left, uh, you know, uh, good riddance. Uh, now that they're in Carolina, uh, did they do the right thing when, when they won the Stanley cup, uh, in, you know, which is about a dozen years ago now and, and, and not sort of, um, I guess, bring it back if you will, or, or, uh, more fully embrace Hartford then when it occurred, uh, you know, a whole bunch of, it's, it's a very, um, uh, intertwined, uh, complex set of emotions. Uh, but it's certainly a fascinating history nonetheless. And, Pat Pickens, our guest this week, is here to uh, help us uh, scratch a little bit deeper than the surface uh, into the history and the lore and the mythology uh, and, frankly, the ongoing saga and story of, let's call them, the Hartford Whalers uh, in our conversation coming up this uh, very uh, episode in just a few moments' time. Fun and frivolity for all, and it's uh, it's just... It's a topic we love to keep going deeper on, and uh, we're happy to bring it to you again uh, this week in our conversation coming up in a moment's time. How about a sponsor that will allow us to all celebrate and uh, remember uh, and and proudly emblazon uh, our memories of the Hartford Whalers? Let's go to royalretros.com, shall we? RoyalRetros.com, the king of throwbacks. You may have formerly known them as 503 Sports, uh, which is now a sub-brand, but they are now officially known as Royal Retros. And RoyalRetros.com, as you probably know by now, if you've listened to this show any length of time, uh, obviously has great t-shirts, right? So lots of great logos and stuff there. Fantastic, of course. But as the name implies, retro, retro jerseys, are one of the hallmarks of their offerings. And uh, in the realm of Hartford Whalers, there are, you know, official, I guess, NHL branded uh, uh, wear that you can get featuring the Hartford Whalers logo. Uh, I I know for certain that the Carolina Hurricanes uh, are, uh, take very strong advantage of that. And even with their, um, uh, their new uh, throwback Jersey uh, things, I think Adidas is doing, uh, there's th- those kind of permutations and you can buy those official things. That's fantastic. Go, knock yourselves out. But if you really want authentic, original uh, and, and meticulously crafted gear 
that would uh, frankly put your um, your friends to shame and would frankly uh, allow them to kind of understand just how deep and original this uh, and consequential, frankly, this franchise uh, was and frankly still continues to be, then you owe it to yourself to check out the uh, various flavors of retro jerseys featuring the Hartford Whalers and even the New England Whalers of the uh, WHA variety at royalretros.com. For example, the New England Whalers jersey comes in two different flavors, the sort of green uh, away jersey with sort of like the white trim and the logo sort of in white uh, with uh, with uh, uh, green in the middle uh, and a harpoon there, the old sort of logo. Or you can get it in white, the home white, uh, with the colors reversed and the green sleeves. It's, it's fantastic. Um, and of course, you can also now get the Hartford Whalers jersey. That's uh, the uh, the what the team was known once they uh, moved uh, to uh, the NHL in 1979. And there are five, count them, five different versions of that jersey, the Hartford Whalers jersey. You could get them in in green. You can get them uh, two different versions in white with silver trim or green trim. Uh, there's a dark sort of navy, I guess, black slash navy colored uh, 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 kit there. And uh, and there's also sort of that bright sort of royal blue a version with white and and green trim. So uh, you will, uh, if you... If you consider yourself uh, a Hartford Whalers fan or even a New England Whalers fan, you owe it to yourself to check out these high quality, handcrafted and customizable, by the way, jerseys. Get your name and number on the back and the front. They're fantastic and they're made with quality. uh, And uh, that's why they've been one of our longest uh, standing sponsors. RoyalRetros.com. Check out these jerseys and many, many others from all kinds of leagues and teams. Uh, at royalretros.com and use the promo code early and often. The promo code there is SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, SEATS. That's the promo code at royalretros.com. You're going to just absolutely be enthralled with these jerseys. Check them out. Get yourself one. Get yourself a bunch. They make great holiday gifts, especially if you grew up in uh, Connecticut, Hartford. You consider yourself a Whalers fan. Go for it. Uh, All that and more at Royal retros.com and uh, we thank dustin alameda and uh, all of his friends there out in portland oregon for their sponsorship of the show and uh, god man these these hartford whalers uh, uh, jerseys are just fantastic well done for sure all right well hopefully we've well done this upcoming conversation we certainly hope you enjoy it here's our chat that we had with pat pickens the author of the brand new stinking uh, fresh off the 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 Barbie uh, book, it's called "The Whalers: The Rise, Fall, and Enduring Mystique of New England's Second Greatest NHL Franchise." Here's our chat with author Pat Pickens. Please, as always, enjoy. Before we get into kind of this story, um, give us a sense of who you are and how you came. To kind of going deep in in a book form on on the whalers, you know that's the you know that's the question because uh, I mean I've asked myself that question you know a lot of times like how did this story end up in my hands because you know I didn't I'm 36 years old so when the team when the whalers moved to Carolina I was 12 so um, you know didn't you know wasn't covering the team certainly when they moved wasn't. Um, 
or you know, I not from Connecticut, not a Whalers fan, not uh, a uh, you know, definitely a hockey fan. Grew up in New Jersey. Grew up a, a big Devils fan in New Jersey, and I think that sort of spawned part of it too. But I, the what I tell people is, and it's you know, obviously the truth. The I started. I went to college in Connecticut, and and then I got a job out of college with a a, a small biweekly newspaper in Connecticut, and um, I was you know the first one of the first uh, events I covered. I used to cover games all the time. I used to cover games, you know. I probably cover five or six games a week, high school games, just in various parts of Connecticut, mostly confined to Fairfield County, but in the state playoffs, it would, it would get broader and, and wider. And, and so one of my, you know, among the first couple of games I covered were uh, high school state hockey champion or playoff game. And, you know, the people up there were, were rabid about it. I was, I was amazed by the, the rabidity towards the high school, you know, their schools, high school hockey, and obviously the knowledge and, and how emotional people get, you know, Connecticut's a little underrated as far as the hockey state is concerned, I think. But, um, but I noticed that the kids, you know, the kids, I, they were teenagers, you know, they weren't kids. I was, you know, you know, much older than them at that point though. Um, and they were all in Whalers sweatshirts and Whalers winter hats and Whalers jerseys and, you know, anything with a Whalers logo on it. And I was sort of fascinated by it. So I put, you know, I stashed it away. Or if I would talk to a player after a hockey game, it would be a, you know, they'd have a Whalers hat on, like a, a snapback hat on. Um, and, you know, people of all, and then I went to, you know, I'd go to the mall on my free, my free time and there would be huge displays of Whalers uh, shirts and hats and, and memorabilia all over at all the malls in, in Connecticut. And, you know, I, I sort of, I was dumbfounded because, you know, those kids, the teenagers that were wearing Whalers paraphernalia, they were in, not even in, in, in grade school in elementary school when the Whalers moved. So they don't have fond recollections of the team. So what, what's their, what, where are they, what are they doing with this? Um, so, so I, you know, I was, I worked at the, at the biweekly paper in Connecticut for five years, five and a half years. And it was right in the middle of the recession. And, you know, those, anybody who follows media knows that the, the recession was terrible for, for newspapers, especially. And, and the, I was in my entry level job and I was approaching 30 and I was like, how, you know, I don't want to cover high school sports for my entire life. I want to get out and do some things. And I was like, how do, what do I, how do I branch out? You know, I would apply to jobs or apply to, uh, you know, bigger beats and, and in other parts of the country, in New York, in, in Boston. And I couldn't get considered for anything. And so I started, I was just like one, one you know, snapped out of it. Um, oddly enough, talking to my sister-in-law, who's now my sister-in-law, she wasn't then. Um, and she was just like, and I had this idea for a book about the whalers because I knew the whalers hadn't been done before. I knew the story hadn't been told. The only story that had been told whalers-wise was, the team commissioned a book in 1987 that was 10 years before the team left. So my sister-in-law was just like, just do it. And I was like, well, just do it. Like it's not, and I, you know, I want to complicate things. I'm like, well, well, I don't know anybody. I don't have any connections. She's like, just find a way to start it. And I, you know, and, and then a week later it was, I was talking to Ken Holland, who was a goalie for the 1979, 80 whalers. And two weeks after that, it was Mark Howe. 
and then it was Stan Fischler, and then it was Howard Baldwin, who Howard Baldwin was uh, among the founders of the Whalers. Yes, former and, former guest of ours. Yes, for sure. Yes, yeah, yes. Howard's a great guy, but um, but and it sort of snowballed, and this was 2011. So um, you know, you see how long it took from start to finish, and there's been a lot. It's I it's what I tell everybody is it's a job that I it's a it's a, it's a it was a passion project that I sort of picked up and put down when I was feeling that when I had time for it. So if I could book an interview, if I could get Ron Francis on the phone, um, you know, I would interview him and then I would stash it away for, you know, a, a couple of weeks at that point. Um, and so what happened was, you know, as these things tend to do, I, I started in 2011, the NHL was in a lockout at that point. And so there were reporters, there was mostly media. I was trying to connect with media members because those were the people I could say I was a media member working on a book about the history of the Hartford Whalers. Cause I didn't, and I wasn't covering hockey. I was covering Connecticut high school sports at that point. And it just turned out that in a couple of years, um, I, I connected with someone who put me in touch with someone at the New York times. And so I started contributing there, contributing hockey stuff for, for the times. And I did that for three years and through that, I learned how to better tell stories. And through that, I learned how to, and I built a network of contacts. I, you know, I got to, to meet, uh, you know, cover games and NHL games and cover, you know, the the Rangers and the Devils and the, the, the Islanders. And, you know, got people got to know who I was um, around, mostly in the New York market, but also around, um, around the league. And, and so, I, you know, if I reached out and said, for instance, you know, I want to talk, you know, can, can somebody get me, Ron Francis was a general manager in Carolina. It was okay. We can do that for 20 minutes. Or what about, you know, Joel Quendell was the coach of the Blackhawks at that point. Um, and I can get him on the phone for, for 10 or 15 minutes or, or the Arizona Coyotes with Dave Tippett was the coach at the time. And it was 20, you know, it was 2013 and it was, um, and I was getting all these insights from people and it just sort of snow. It, so it took off from there. And, and there was a lot of those great players, um, Ray Ferraro and, and Ron Francis and Kevin Deneen and Joel Quenville and, and um, from, from the glory days of Whalers hockey. And they loved telling the stories. And so it went from there to, to NHL.com. And, and then you're in the big leagues. You know, you're full, I was a full-time staffer at NHL.com for five years. And, you know, then the, then the PR people really know you. So if you need to get in touch with somebody, if you need to get it, they, they'll get you much faster than, than if you're just, you know, a, part, a freelancer for the New York Times. So, um, and it was one of those things that I was just really persistent about that, um, you know, if somebody told me that they were doing a book about the whalers, they were like, okay, you know, you get, you could go for it. You know, let me, you know, show me, you can do it. And, um, and, and I just, it was one of those things that I always felt was going to be the ticket for me, that this, that, that this was going to be my ticket to something bigger, something greater, something, you know, more exceptional in my career, because, like I said, I started, I was, I was covering high school sports in Fairfield, Connecticut. And, it, you know, it was, it was fine. It was stable. It was, you know, it was, the pay was laughable, but um, it was, it set me off on the trajectory and, but I didn't want to do it forever. And it sort of, the, the book was sort of the door, the, the ticket that opened the doors for some places that, that, um, and, and then at some point it just became about, I you know I, I got in touch with the publisher and they were like, you know, they, pa they passed on it at first, or the first publisher passed on it, passed it along to the second publisher, the Lion, uh, Lions Press in Connecticut, uh, a subsidiary of Roman and Littlefield. 
And it was really simple. And they were like, you know, here's a contract. Do you want to do this for us? And I was like, okay. And, um, and it, it, and then it became about, you know, finishing it really. And it, cause it was one of those things that, you know, like I said, I picked it up and put it down and I would do a lot of interviews in the off season, um, the summertime, because, you know, that's when everyone's free to talk and they have more time to talk. And like I said, I, I, I was in contact with PR directors and, and they knew me and, and they trusted me at that point. They knew I wasn't going to burn them because Ken Holland, the first question he asked me, and I, he, uh, or the last question he asked me when we got the phone, he said, you know, you're not writing something about getting the whalers back into Hartford. Cause I'm, I'm definitely not answering that question right now. Cause he was the GM of the Red Wings at the time. And, uh, and I was obviously the GM of the Oilers now, but, um, but no, I had to assure them. And then, you know, as you build some credibility, as you build some trust with these people, it, um, it sort of snowballed and, and my writing got better and, you know, and then I learned things. I learned a ton of things because that was the other piece of this that to me is most fascinating is that I, I, I liken my knowledge of the whalers before I started writing to the, the book to that of what I knew about the Titanic before I saw the movie. I had a sort of a passing knowledge of it. I had this, you know, well, there was a team in Hartford, they were really bad and then they moved. And, you know, I, like I said, didn't, didn't grow up going to games at the civic center. Didn't grow up watching Ron Francis. Didn't grow up watching um, the, 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 the great whaler teams or, or, you know, going to the city or listening to brass bonanza or living and dying with Chuck Caton, like so many Connecticut people did. And, and that's why, like I said, you know, it feels very surreal to be coming to this point because it was 10 years to write, started to finish, um, uh, the, the first interview with, with Ken Holland was November 2nd, 2011. I looked it up the other day and now October 15th, 2021, we're coming out and it's, it's not exactly 10 years, but it's, uh, nine years, 11 months and a half months roughly. So, um, but it, it's been a ride and it's been remarkable and it's been fascinating. And I just, I'm excited to share it with everybody. Well, well, and now you're on the precipice, right? So as we record this, we'll be dropping this uh, this episode literally the week it's uh, it's available. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see how people take to it. But having nibbled around this story previously with our conversation with Howard Baldwin, we've talked to whaler guys who still have their little TV, local cable show and stuff. I, I would say, and I think you kind of maybe set this up perfectly in that you are dispassionate to this story, and most of the people that we've talked to were either involved with the story or have a homer slash rooting interest in this story, which in a lot of cases, right, as fans of sports teams are and, and, and tend to be, uh, a little, I want to say myopic, but they have a certain lens, right, that they approach the story, right? So... I, I, arguably, you, you put yourself uh, either wittingly or unwittingly uh, in a position to be objective. Um, but let me ask you this. As this story unfolded for you and as you learned about all the sort of characters and, and, and the situations around this story, 10 years in length, God bless, right, that you stuck with it. Did you find yourself falling into sort of that hagiography or that sort of passion play so to speak or did you do you feel like you maintained some level of objectivity or a complete level of objectivity uh as you, as you near the finish line yeah i i have a soft spot for the whalers without a doubt there's no doubt um but i i, I definitely believe in my objectivity 
that um, I, you know, I have, I have made friends with booster club members um, with Hartford Whalers booster club members. And I, and I, 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 I understand where they're coming from. I, um, I, you know, I would say that I, I think I was very objective because like you said, it wasn't like some, some, there was not some, some soft nostalgia for a, a bygone era in that regard for me, because although I could get into, you know, some of why, how my own uh, fandom sort of, I think inadvertently or, or again, unwittingly uh, set me up for, for this story in particular, but I think I definitely understand the, the excitement about the team. I definitely could feel, um, I mean, I have my own excitement about this. You know, this project is, is extremely exciting and it's, it's tied to this team. And, and so by proxy, you know, I am attached to the team, but I, I, I believe that I told the story. I, I basically just presented it and I laid all the facts out there. And I think that was why to your point was that, was why I feel, you know, I might've been maybe the perfect person to write this book because like I said, I, I came in with a blank canvas. I learned some things from reading, from reading archives. I learned some things from listening to fans. I learned some things from listening to ex-players. I learned some, th- some things from talking to broadcasters who could provide some perspective and, and media who covered the team and government officials in Connecticut who have their own stance on what happened. And I think what I did was I just sort of took all that and put it together and just put it in, put it all there. It's all there. And, you know, you, but also obviously in a position where, um, you know, to, to highlight the things that were important, because I think, I think where I get, um, where I feel strongly about the will, I don't know if Hartford's ever going to have a, an NHL team again. Um, there were, you know, my, I've sort of vacillated on that um, opinion because there were times in the past couple of years where I said, well, yeah, I think that there's a definite possibility when you look at what Connecticut's trying to do in Hartford with the XL center form, the building formerly known as the Hartford Civic center. And there, you know, the NHL is, is, I wouldn't say considering it, but they are, they are aware of what Connecticut is doing in terms of trying to upgrade the building in, in Hartford. I think you see, even you could see how insanely popular the the Whalers brand is and that the, the Carolina hurricanes are, are leaning into that. That's covered in there about why, when and why the hurricanes decided to actually lean in to the Whalers brand and, you know, when they started wearing the Whalers Jersey on the ice and the uniform and, and that there was, you know, they came out with a third Jersey, the the reverse retro Jersey from Adidas in the 2020, 2021 season. And it was a Whalers Jersey, just like the Avalanche's Jersey was a Quebec Nordiques Jersey. And, but you know, there's, there's some, so I spoke with people from in Carolina who were very open about, why they wanted to lean into the Whalers brand. And so that has to be so alluring to some degree where you say you have this brand, you have this city that's upgrading. It's an extremely wealthy market in Hartford and New Haven and Springfield, Massachusetts. It's Connecticut's annually one of the two most wealthy states in the country. And you have this little Hartford market there, you know, with an airport, with Springfield, it's 2 million people, which if you listen to people in the booster club members, they say, well, 
Raleigh's smaller, St. Louis is smaller, it's a comparable with Denver. And they say, well, and they're made up of millionaires and they're made up of insurance people and they're CEOs that live up there. So, you know, but, but like you said, they have the lens, they have the bias that they want the team back. And I would, you know, it would be fun to see the Whalers play again. But I think, I think what I ultimately, I, I think I'm a fairly objective person to begin with um, in a lot of ways in sports, you know, my sports fandom has been sort of, especially in hockey has been sort of beaten out of me at this point because, um, because, you know, you cover the sport for so long. I like a lot of people on a lot of teams and, um, you know, I've gotten to know uh, players who I rooted against growing up uh, guys like Kevin Deneen played for the Philadelphia Flyers. Couldn't stand them in Philadelphia um, when he was there between his stints in Hartford, but Kevin, you know, Kevin's a great guy. Uh, um, you know, Sean Burke was the devil's goalie was the Whalers goalie, you know, among other places, you know, got to know, I got, you know, got to know some of these people, got to know some of the characters, got to know, you know, fortunately some of the, you know, Ron Francis, one of the greatest players of all time. But, um, but I think, you know, what, what, what never left me was this sort of nagging sense that Connecticut does, isn't the booster club people may be invested in making it happen. There are politicians who are interested in making it happen, but the state of Connecticut to me doesn't seem, doesn't have a strong enough passion for getting the whalies back. And that's what I always cling to. And that's what people say, well, is Hartford ever going to get a team again? Well, you know, you never say never, right? Because the NHL has left Atlanta, it left Minnesota, it left Colorado, it left the, uh, the Bay Area, and it all came back. Right. All those cities got teams again and Winnipeg, you know, too, to that point, Howard Baldwin made that point when we spoke um, that, you know, we spoke right after Winnipeg got the thrashers back. And he said that if Hartford had been organized, he believed it could have, you know, that could have been their opportunity to strike. And there's no shortage of sick teams in the NHL, but you look at where the NHL expanded to Seattle, to Vegas and then Seattle. And then, you know, with the coyote situation is a little bit, you know, it feels like Houston's the ultimate landing spot for them, but um, if not, if they don't stay in Arizona, but it just, the, 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 the math, the math doesn't add up for Hartford in that regard. And, and the market doesn't, doesn't add up, frankly. Yeah. Well, okay. But, but I, so, so many, so many questions to unpack there. So let, let me start with, with one, I guess is, um, I, you know, I think what you're sort of hinting at and, and sure we could talk about Phoenix, which I think is a franchise that is going sideways uh now with the arena thing but i and, and you can understand uh you know uh following say blogs like field of schemes right and the book uh, behind that and 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 this the sheer the sheer shakedown that uh, that pro teams increasingly are doing with communities and stuff you can imagine why why some politicians and i, I don't know the specifics of of Connecticut and Hartford in particular are shall we say loath to uh, put uh, taxpayer money uh, at risk for, uh, let's put it uh, at best, questionable economics that come uh, to it. But I, I would argue that, you know, in Hartford's case, right, it's it's probably a better pitch to be, and I think you hinted at it, more of a regional play than a city play, right? Because Hartford, as a city, yeah. right, not a major media market, it certainly overlaps two gigantic ones in Boston mm-hmm. Uh, and in New York Metro, and then you can throw in some of the smaller ones like, 
you know, Western Massachusetts and the like, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, but to your, to your point, right? If you if you draw sort of that regional radius circle around the Hartford area that extends into those areas, right? You're probably looking yeah. at a population that is, on average, uh, financially healthier uh, and could support, even though there are what four teams uh in you know around that area that would be uh potentially affected you know you can make the argument that three teams in the new york metro is maybe one too many already Mm -hmm. um but i don't know it feels like a regionally strong kind of proposition and you know if that's where the money is it's probably it's 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 not something you can't not look at i think that's that's what makes Connecticut, and i i cover this in the book it's one of those things that make that makes Connecticut as a sports state so maddening because it's all there. You just put, you, you laid it out perfectly that you know the money is there. The you know there's there's Connecticut views itself as a, very much as a major league state in terms of you know they they want to support a big a big uh, time program. They don't have you know. Well, I'll get into it. Um, they want to support the big team. They want to. They want to be on the, you know, on the bandwagon and and rooting for the, you know, they have the requisite major league dollars. But I think where and Peter Carmanos and I spoke about this, and he made this point, and I, I, there are people in Hartford who would dispute it, but it's hard to dispute. You you hit the the nail on it. Is that. You, if you talk about Connecticut, there's a lot of wealth in Fairfield County, in lower Fairfield County, uh, in lo- the lower part of the state, which, which is Fairfield County. And, but that's New York. That's the New York market. In fact, you know, people in the booster club who are you know, adamant about Connecticut as a market, did they toss Fairfield County out? Because there's, that's, uh, that's New York, Frank, um, or the extension of New York. You look at, you know, New Haven County, people from New Haven County could commute to, to New York. Um, people in the northeast corner of the state, they're, they're Boston people. And, and people up in Hartford um, are Boston people at this point. And, but people in Hartford also root for the New York Giants in football um, and, and are pretty, you know, and passionate about it. So I think, you know, and to the point Carmano's made was, you know, we're competing for entertainment dollars with these, these mega organizations, these teams that have been around at that point, it's like 70, 75 years. And, and the whalers have been there for, for in, in Hartford, they've been, when Carmelo took over, the whalers have been in Hartford for 19 years and they're going against the giants. They're going against the Yankees. They're going against the Red Sox who have this, you know, you know, you know, the, 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 fan, the Red Sox nation fan base, is New England, frankly, and um, so and the Bruins were not going to do the Whalers any favors, and and I don't think would still do them favors with the with the Jacobs family. They're as they're as tight wadded as, as it is to begin with, um, and they don't, they run the Bruins, and the Bruins are a cash cow. So I, I think Carmanos came in. Like I said, it was enticing, and it it, it all it's like I said, it's all there because you put. You put the if you were looking for the market that is starved for sports, that is, for a major league sports team, you know, with the requisite dollars, with the with with a building, with the climate, with you know, or a, a climate and a passion for the sport, and you look at what um, 
and and the rapidity of the fandom, like the the you know the people of Connecticut are are if you go to you know, all it takes is one UConn basketball game to see how crazy this people can get for the team, and and the UCONN chance, and, and even the women's team, the women's team is is more popular than the men in some cases, um, and it's you know and I but I think all of that has sort of you know that. But but you said it. There's there's they're right there, and it's not like they're they're not within strike. It's not like it's five hours to get from Hartford to Boston. It's a hundred miles. Um, even Hartford to New York with the you know the, the traffic in Connecticut is atrocious. But you can be from Hartford to New York in three hours, like for a day trip to a Giants game, for a day trip to a Rangers game. Um, you know the the the. It, they will. The people in Connecticut again have the money to do that. They have the money to go to Boston for the day. They have the money to go to the Red Sox for the day, for the Bruins for the day. Um, they could shell out full. I mean, I have friends who lived in Fairfield County who could go to Foxborough on Sunday night games and get home late, but uh, Sunday night um, Patriots games, and they'd get home late, but it was doable. So I think the proximity to Boston and New York is a problem, and, and I don't think anybody who it's one of those things that, you know, you could say Connecticut is a hundred miles away or Hartford is a hundred miles from Boston. Like I said, it's three, I, I drove it from New York to Hartford in the, in the, in the summertime, it was three hours and that was through the traffic. So I, that's not, I don't think the, 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 the distance is not a deterrent enough to keep people away. And again, these, these teams are just some of the, you know, some of the biggest, I mean, they're the oldest, most, you know, deeply ingrained, uh, teams that, and again, you were competing against their entertainment dollars in Hartford when, and when Carmanos took over, the team was terrible too. Let's reel it back for a second though. So, so there's a one, there, to me, the, the word that strikes, uh, the reader when they see the cover uh, of this book that I think really kind of everything hinges on it. And that's the word mystique. What, what is it? What was it? And what is it? No, it is. This? It still is. Yeah. All right. Very so much so is. what is it then about this franchise that, uh, given what you've just laid out, it, it economically, it's questionable if something like this can come back. We mentioned how successful the merchandise is. We'll get into the hurricanes and all that stuff a little bit later. But what is it about? And you're not even part of this mystique because you weren't around at the time per se, and you weren't sort of involved in the story, right? So you don't even have any any affiliation or affinity, if you will, for this story. So what is it that that makes this the most popular jersey of of any non-existing team to still sell merchandise? And why do people in this region? And frankly, the diaspora from this team, people who had time at this team, why do they still have a nostalgic, nostalgic fondness, he says, for this club? What is it? What was it about this club? So I think um, there's a lot of there's a lot of things. Um, and I think that's what made I think that's what made exploring that is what made this book really so I think that's question. I mean, that's the first chapter of the book to start with. And I think that's the question that on everyone's minds, you know, why does this team resonate? Why did, why do the Hartford whalers matter? Well, for starters, they're in Hartford and Hartford is let's I think 15 miles from Bristol. So the, the Hartford ESPN connection, um, ESPN propped Hartford, the whalers up in the first place because 
the whalers were among the first content that ESPN had because it was right there. You know, like I said, 15 minutes down the road, they could be get footage from Hartford Whalers games. And that all sort of evolved. And, and, and as they married even further, like Chris Berman was a member, was, uh, was on the Whalers board when they left. And, um, and there, you know, there were other people, you know, so, so ESPN had an impact um, in terms of built, propping up Hartford in the first place. I think, I think there is a, 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 I don't even think, I know there is a fascination with the, the whalers identity and the whalers identity is just this kitsch. And it's, you know, how many teams did you see wearing green jerseys in the 1980s? How many teams did you see using logos that had negative, that had a, a letter or a, you know, a, a coordinating aspect of, in negative space. How many teams had a fight song? How many well, hockey teams had a fight song? And I think these were things, it's, they're, they're not just, they were, they were kitschy at the time. And, but they, they lasted because they were good, right? The logo, ironically, or, or coincidentally, Peter Good is the creator of the logo. Um, was a sole person created the, the Hartford Whalers logo, and um, and it was perfect. You know, if you look at it, it's a, it, it's incredible, and the color scheme of green and, and and royal blue and the green jerseys, like you know, nobody was wearing green at the time. And I think it's funny because Peter Good and I talked a few years ago. It had to be like 2018, and he, you know, he said that when he presented. He presented the logo to Howard Baldwin and Jack Kelly, who was running the Whalers program at the time. He was a general manager. It was right before they went to the NHL. And he presented them with these logos, and Jack Kelly hated them. Jack Kelly, career hockey guy, uh, first coach of the Whalers, led them to the WHA championship their first year. Um, you know, father of David E. Kelly, the, the, you know, to, to, to pull it all together, the, uh, the famed TV producer. But Jack Kelly could not stand the logo, could not stand Brass Bonanza, could, um, could not stand, you know, this kitschy sort of, but, but, and I wrote this in the book, you look at the original six, you know, like I already mentioned the Bruins, the Bruins are cash cow, but why their identity is tradition, the Rangers, the Le- the Maple Leafs, the Canadians, the Blackhawks, the original six tradition, right? The Edmonton Oilers, the New York Islanders, um, you know, some of the, the, the more, you know, the more recent dynasty teams, the Penguins, their tradition, their identity is winning. You know, Edmonton has fallen on hard times. The Islanders also as well, but they have this sort of tradition of winning and that's their identity, you know? Um, and Hartford, the Hartford Whalers were, they were not good on the ice. They were, you know, they were okay in the box office generally, but you knew when they scored a goal, you were going to hear brass bonanza you knew they were going to take the ice to brass bonanza and that they were going to be wearing green jerseys um, on the road and the white jerseys at home, which were, which I love the white jerseys too. Um, and you knew that, th- that this was just sort of their identity was that they're the, and again, Hartford, I said this, I've said this a bunch of times on, on a various media spots because Hartford might as well be anywhere in the country, any city in the country. Um, and I think the people of Hartford would take some umbrage to that, but um because they don't, they want to think, and it's true. Hartford is a special place, 
Um, it's, it's tied to the insurance industry. It's been the, the, the essentially the insurance capital of the world uh, for years. And that's their major industry. And, and, but, and then also how, how the whalers existed because they essentially had a, when Howard, I mean, I'm sure Howard told you this, but um, when Howard, Howard didn't have the money to front to back the whalers financially and Hartford is not a big enough market to have, you know, big TV uh, or a big corporate, but, but they had a conglomeration of corporations who fed money to the team and they got a percentage ownership of the team. So Aetna had a, had an ownership stake in the team and the, the newspaper, the Hartford current had a 0.1% stake ownership of the team. And so they had this, this sort of, and this Green Bay Packers style share thing where they were, where the corporate community owned the team, funded the team, essentially bankrolled the operation and then seated the organ the, um, the operation to Howard and, and Howard, you know, is a great marketer. <laughs> he, he, he figured out that he could sell people, you know, people in Connecticut didn't know hard. They didn't know hockey when he brought the team there. And in 10 years, they were extremely hot. Um, when you look at the players, the team they had built, now they went through bumps through early in the early NHL days where, you know, they traded Mark Howe, where they fired coaches left and right, where they traded their first round draft pick essentially every year um, when they were terrible. And, but, but they, they, I think that that is the fascinating, I think the fascination is that again, the logo endures, the Jersey endures, Brass Bonanza is a cool little, little song. And, and it's this Hartford kit, this sort of small town, small market kitsch, which again, ironically is Connecticut is the irony is that it's in Connecticut because Connecticut is a big league, big market, you know, not really, you know, the people in Connecticut are not interested in being a, a small market state, but, or have a small town vibe, you know, they want to be Boston, they want to be New York, but that was their, that's, that was their identity. I think that's what has lasted because like I said, you know, the, the Jersey and logo were way ahead of their time and brass bonanza is like a, a, a catchy little tune. And, and again, Hartford as any town, you know, you look at if the Atlanta thrashers left people in Atlanta just went, went right along there with their day. Um, Atlanta is not any town. Atlanta is the biggest city in the South. Um, uh, Quebec and Winnipeg are in Canada. And that, so there is some, there's obviously that in Canada, but that's not the U S here. So I think there, there's some nostalgia there. I think there's definitely a nostalgic element there. Um, for, you know, we, people my age grew up playing video games, you know, the, the, the EA game or, or, or some of the other NHL video games. And, you know, we grew up with Hartford in the video game, or we grew up watching Hartford on TV. And I think, you know, we're, we, we sort of pine for those simpler times when, when you'd see a game on ESPN two, where the, where it was, you know, with the Hartford Whalers against whoever, and the, the graphics were ridiculous and the Whalers were wearing, um, you know, these, these jerseys with these crazy logo and that, and that Hartford was a major league town. So um, I, that, you know, I'd say, I, I think the kitsch is what it endures because I, I, I wrote in the book too, that to me, it feels like, you know, like I said, buying a sweatshirt is easier than buying a season ticket or buying a jerseys way cheaper than buy, you know, than supporting a, a, a team for 40 nights a year. 
And I think that's where the whalers live is sort of this fascinating, you know, people want, people love the logo. People love the idea of Hartford as a minor league, as a major league city, but I don't think the people in Connecticut that they'd rather just put the sweatshirt on or they'd rather just put the hat on or that, you know, as opposed to putting in the legwork to make the team uh, exist again. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, we can also be a little bit more uh, clear eyed about sort of uh, the, the, the years that they spent in Hartford, right? I mean, a lot of their biggest uh, games and sellouts, frankly, were when they were playing the Bruins or the Islanders or the Rangers, right? Which are the natural geographical rivalries, frankly, some t- often populated by some of those fans that that, you know, either got priced out of tickets at their home arenas or just felt like it was it was within reach. Right. Um, but I, I you know, you mentioned the small town thing. Right. And I and I get the New England se- and Connecticut sensibility about, you know, we're not small town. We're not, you know, you know, local yokel types yet. It was the smallest market. Right. The smallest arena in in that regard but i also think too it feels to me like there was also sort of a um and this certainly was the case on the ice during most of their nhl l years for example for sure was sort of this underdog kind of uh thing right they were the only american franchise in the wha that survived the merger right and just by that definition alone in 79 right they they already had to prove themselves i mean like from the get-go right and it, it wasn't I don't think the NHL uh, lovingly embraced these teams that came came across the threshold into the into the league, and obviously it, it strengthened and, and and had a lot of positive effects, right? But you know, in some respects, I think Hartford kind of, you know, was was not necessarily looked upon as being, uh, I I don't know, a full fledged and uh, assumed to be. A, uh, fledgling member of the NHL, I think it really kind of had to go out of its way to to prove itself, despite some of its successes and stability. Ironically, in the WHA. Yeah, yeah, and it, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think, I think you sort of t- uh, hinted at it, but I think what you mentioned the, the alumni, and I think that to me is it's it's one of those things that I sort of came. I, I'll say I came onto it late but I came onto it late, meaning I was like two years into the book project when I, it sort of dawned on me that like, that all these great players in, in Whalers history are now among the most high profile and, and powerful people in, in hockey. Um, you know, Joel Quenville and, and these, these guys all came through the, you know, so yes, to answer your question about the WHA, yes, they were, you know, as stable as they could have been, frankly, because, you know, they, they played in three different homes, uh, I'd say four different home arenas in W well, five different home arenas in WHA. When you look at, they split their time in between two arenas in Boston. The only year that the only full year they were in Boston, they moved to Springfield as the civic center was being built. Um, Springfield, Massachusetts at the, at the old, the big E, the, the old fairgrounds arena. They went to Hartford for the civic center. And then when the roof collapsed, they went back to the Mass Mutual Center in Springfield, five arenas in the WHA. And that was stable for the WHA. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's, that's <laughs> the you say you were the most stable franchise in the World Hockey Association. I mean, you, you, we had, uh, uh, God bless, we had the uh, uh, the late Dennis Murphy on our, our show a couple of times uh, in, in a few years back. And, um, you know, his memories are, are were actually pretty clear. But uh, and Howard sort of uh, uh, sort of underlined some of these as well. But um, yeah, I mean, to to, to be <laughs> uh, uh, having won a championship and 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 being competitive and and making Hartford work 
uh, in the WHA itself was a testament. I mean, it, arguably that alone uh, was, uh, I guess, a reward <laughs> to get into the NHL. But in in many respects, you could make the argument that, you know, as as the decade turned, right, um, they almost had to prove themselves all over again. It's almost like they had to start from square one now that they were sort of part of this big, if you will, bad NHL. Which is interesting, too, because Gordy Howe was a whaler the first year. And, and they traded for Bobby Hull at the trade deadline that first season in the NHL. So, I mean, Gordy and Mark, I mean, it, it, it was a publicity stunt, the Gordy Howe thing in the NHL. And, and don't, don't discount Hartford, um, Howard's influence in getting them in the NHL in the first place because Howard, Howard made the deal between WHA and the NHL happen. And Howard was not making the WHA NHL merger without getting his team in the NHL. Um, which for better or worse, you know, that's why we had the NHL in Hartford all those years. But what's, what's ironic about what you're saying is it's, and it's true is that the Whalers were a playoff team their first year in the NHL and they were, you know, they were good. You know, they were competitive. They were, they had continuity that other WHA teams did not have. They had, um, a roster full of players that had played together. They had, again, Gordy Howe, but they had Mark Howe. They had, again, traded for Bobby Hull. Um, they had a line, a top line, Mike Rogers, Blaine Stoughton, and Pat Boutet, who, when was put together, was one of the highest scoring lines in, in hockey. Uh, Blaine Stoughton's 56 goals is still a franchise record um, for the Whalers and the Hurricanes. And so, and that was the first year in the NHL. And that was part of why they got, you know, so they got to the playoffs that first year and they won a bunch of games at, at, when they, when the building reopened in Hartford that first season, they were a dominant home team at the civic center. And then it all just went, just went poof, you know, for right, right then it was, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was a mirage. They had a bunch of injuries in the, in the before their series against the Canadians, and the Canadians didn't quite overlook them as Hartford would have hoped they would have. But after after that first season in the NHL, they were they were terrible, and they were not even terrible; they were embarrassing. Um, and which is weird because you know you made the point about proving themselves. They outdrew the Bruins for I, I think it was the first three years in the NHL. So they were getting the crowds; the attendance was 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 there. They just, they had, they did not have a system. Howard said they didn't have a program they stuck to. And, and he was right. And it, and it really cost them, you know, in terms of equity in their market, because um, fortunately, Emil Francis guided them back to not even respectability. They were, they were good when under the Emil Francis days, but in, and, and they drafted well, you know, well enough. Bill Deneen, Kevin Deneen's father was the scouting director and he knew players to draft. He drafted Ron Francis. He drafted his son. Um, he drafted, you know, guys like Ol Sanderson. He drafted guys like, um, you know, Ray Ferraro. He, he drafted the whole core. The unfortunate uh, aspect was that Howard was advocating for the Whalers to trade their number one pick to, you know, to get goal scoring, to get goal tending, to get, you know, they lost um, – they lost Pat Boutet as as um, as um, he was compensation for uh, 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 signing Greg Villain as the goaltender. They lost 
Um, they traded Mike Rogers. Mike Rogers built a house in Farmington, Connecticut, um, and ten days later he was traded to the Rangers. Um, and Mike, I mean, Mike Rogers and I spoke about that, and he says he still doesn't understand what what they were doing. That he was he had consecutive hundred point seasons, and he was their captain, and he wanted to stay at Hart. Like you said, he built a house, um, and they they traded Mark Howe. Not only traded him, but alienated him, and then traded him, which. Um, which Mark Howe, I mean, it was one of those things that, again, when Mark Howe and I spoke the first time, I was not fully aware of what had happened with him with his, in, with his injury. And then I, I was lucky enough to speak to him again a, a few years later, like seven years later, eight years later. And it was, it was just fascinating to hear him talk about what he went through, nearly dying on the ice. And the fact that he missed 17 games with this, after this grotesque injury where he went, um, essentially the, was, was, uh, um, the, 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 the net, the, the, the goal um, maimed him, I believe, is, is, uh, is the terminology I'll use. Um, and he missed 17 games and he was terrible. And then he gets, you know, and then they alienate him. They say, okay, you don't really want to be here. You don't really want to, you, you made your money. You should go retire. And he says, okay, well, you don't want me here, then trade me. And then they trade him to Philadelphia and becomes a Hall of Famer. And, um, and so that was the type of situation that they were dealing with in, in, with the Whalers. And, and again, people were showing up for the games, uh, you know, the, the, cause again, it was Hartford's home team. And back in the early eighties, there wasn't quite the cable TV operation that there is now, or even in the nineties that, that there was, um, you know, Hartford to Boston was a little, felt a little bit farther. Hartford to the Rangers was a little bit farther. Um, New York, people didn't want to go to New York in the 1980s. Um, and so, you know, and there was a, and U, UConn basketball wasn't anywhere near the, the caliber. UConn football, forget it. So there was a big league act in town and people would go see it in Hartford. And they wasted some of those years. And it's unfortunate because, like I said, they were a great, you know, you said you were right, Tim. They were stable in the WHA. Um, although, again, they did change coaches almost every year in the WHA, but they were a playoff team every year. And they won the, you said they won the championship the first year. They, they played for the, the Avco Cup a few other times. And, and they came in with this incredible, magical first season, and then it fell off a cliff for a while. All right. Well, we could go so deep into, you know, season by season stuff and the various things. I, and we, we only got a, a short amount of time. But let me I guess I'd want to get into sort of the the denouement of the team in, in Hartford and and kind of maybe wind up with some some questions about sort of the Hurricanes ownership and and its current treatment and or. Uh, I don't know, uh, uh, infatuation, perhaps anew with the with the franchise. So I, in the 90s, right? So you mentioned uh, 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 Peter uh, uh, Carmenos, who was the who who got the franchise in. Well, I guess it was 94 or so. Um, but I, I'm so I guess I'm wondering, sort of, from what you could tell in your objective uh, perspective. Um, was that the beginning of the end of the franchise, if you will, in Hartford? Were were the days kind of numbered in retrospect when he came along and and despite saying he was going to keep the team in Hartford, that it was essentially a fait accompli? Or, or was it, in your mind, do you feel that his was a genuine effort to 
keep maybe and rehabilitate and, and strengthen the franchise in Hartford? Or was it kind of already a done deal that it was essentially just a matter of time? Um, Chuck Caton, who is the great play-by-play, uh, former play-by-play announcer in Carolina and Hartford, we, we, I asked him this because um, – and I asked everybody this, whether, whether their opinion was that Carmano, for, well, first off, let's say uh, Carmano's tried, it, or he said, he swears he tried, um, that he was the one who tried with what he told me was that, uh, you know, the, his other Tom Thews backed him financially. And Jim Rutherford was, was a part owner, also the general manager. They said, you know, forget it. Don't even, and that Carmano's really tried, you know, tried to make it work, tried to get a new arena, tried to, and he said he blamed the, the governor, Jim Ro- uh, John Rowland, who, also, you know, there's, there's a story behind, there, too. Um, the, 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 what Chuck and I talked about was that the economics is what caught up with Hartford. And for, for a number of reasons. But it wasn't Carmano's uh, entire, entirely. Um, you know, Richard Gordon really set the team up to fail um, in, in so many ways. And, and Carmano's, you know, puts the blame on Howard Baldwin too, for, for, for a unique reason that one that I hadn't heard from anywhere else is that um, the Whalers drafted Ron Francis. Um, they had the opportunity to trade up and draft Bob Carpenter and they wanted to, because they were negotiating a TV contract and the Colorado Rockies ultimately traded up to draft, or sorry, the, the Capitals traded up with the Rockies to draft Bob Carpenter and the Whalers were left with Ron Francis but the TV contract that they negotiated, that they were negotiating that, um, that Larry Flo, who, you know, told me at the time, said they were trying, they were, they would get eyeballs from drafting Bob Carpenter because he was a mass guy. He'd come from high school. He was the canvas kid on sports illustrated. And, and that would attract people. The TV contract they ultimately signed was a 20 year contract with sports channel. And 20 years from 1982, uh, I always get those years confused. I think it was 81, but 20 years from 1981 was 2001 and 2001, the Whalers were in Carolina. So they negotiated their TV contract for 20 years, about 10 years before cable really took off. And, and these things got really lucrative. And, and so that Carmano's blamed Howard for that. And so, but Richard Gordon really set the team up to, to get Richard Gordon was the owner after Howard. He bought, he and Don Conrad purchased the team together. Conrad and Gordon had a falling out and Gordon didn't have the requisite hockey knowledge to be a hands-on owner, but he wanted to be a hands-on owner. And he, but he also couldn't stand losing the type of money that playing for an NHL team Hartford would provide. So, you know, Gordon essentially was losing money hand over fist. He sold off all of his leverage to the state of Connecticut in exchange for debt relief. So that's, so Gordon sold off revenue to parking. He sold off revenue to concession. He sold off revenue to luxury boxes. So when Carmano took the team, he said, what? he said, he said, what am I getting frankly? And, and it, it was to the point where he was essentially just getting tickets and, and there was, you know, sponsorship had dried up to some degree and there's, cause there's not a lot of sponsorship op- opportunities to begin with. And, and the Bruins w- would not cede over the Massachusetts line to them. So anything in Springfield was off limits in terms of marketing, in terms of sponsorships, in terms of partnerships. 
And so the whalers were, and again, and then they didn't have all these ancillary uh, benefits. So Carmanos wanted a new team, I'm sorry, a new arena, but Gordon set themselves up. Plus he traded Ron Francis um, or, or was the person who oversaw trading Ron Francis, whether you want to blame Gordon, whether you want to blame, you know, at Johnston, whether you want to blame uh, Rick Lee, who took the C from Ron Francis, um, whether you just want to blame economics. Um, you know, I, I said this, on a, I forget whether it was a podcast or a TV appearance. I've been doing so many. It's been so, they all sort of run together, but, um, but Peter Carmanos wears the black hat in Hartford because he doesn't care. Frankly, if, if he had tried to do any PR um, or damage control about his time in Hartford, people would see, I, I think people would see things were different. And, and, and through the lens of time, I mean, he's still reviled there. And, and Carmanos hates Hartford um, because it, it didn't work there. And the government was, was not, did not play ball with him. But, um, but, and I think Carmanos is, a, is, is I, I'm re- I was really happy I got to speak with him because he's a, he, he's a really unique figure in, in hockey, in the, in the history of hockey, because he's in the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame. He's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's, you know, he, he, he was the first U.S. owner of, a, of an Ontario Hockey League team. He bought the Windsor Spitfires because he's based in Detroit, outside, right outside of Windsor. And he has this sort of, he has this, I mean, he's well-respected by the hockey community. He's well-respected in the NHL. Gary Bettman loves, you know, talks glowingly about him. And yet, for some reason, he moved his team from Hartford to Carolina and that doesn't stain any of it. You know, he, I, you know, I went to um, the Detroit suburbs to Birmingham, Michigan to interview Peter Kamanos. And he, you know, we pointed out that in the U S uh, at the U S uh, hockey training center in Plymouth, Mich- uh, Plymouth, Michigan, his face is right there he, again for his, for his great, um, his great time uh, owning the Spitfires and, and, and developing the CompuWare program, the youth program, that became one of the standards in, ter- or in terms of, or a pioneer program in terms of becoming the standard of youth hockey and how things should be done and developing young players and developing um, United States born talent. And again, he is in the hockey hall of fame. And I, and yet in Hartford, which again, is so is also so beloved among hockey people. He's despised and, you know, he's persona non grata. Um, he, you know, people, he wouldn't get out of Hartford alive if he went there. And, he, and again, it's, he doesn't care, but, um, but I, I think Carmanos says he tried. Um, I don't believe he bought the team to move it because if he did, he would have bought the team and moved it. I think, um, I just think he's a, he's a passionate guy. He's an emotional guy. And he, what he saw, he said he was, he saw the government kicking them out and, it's weird too how they ended up in Carolina because he wanted to go to Columbus and he, he told the team they were going to go to Columbus in the last week of the regular season of 96, 97. Um, and there was a referendum on an arena that fell through and they didn't have a place to go. And they, he shopped it around a little bit. He shopped it to Minnesota, to Minnesota. He told me he, he kicked some tires in San Diego um, before ultimately going to Raleigh and he, and that was, you know, that was 
they weren't even ready for him in Raleigh yet, right? Yeah, they had to play in Greensboro for two years, right? So it's it's, it's interesting, but it, it does feel to me that, and, and I was not there, and, and we could probably get a little bit more deep on it, but yeah, I think it, my guess is, right? You tell me that 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 part of besides the government not wanting to shell out taxpayer dollars, right? Which, by the way, in many respects, is almost ahead of its time, right? If you look at you fast forward another 20, 30 years to now, right? Uh, the hijacking that's going on in, in 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 communities for billion dollar football stadiums, right? I mean, even that is so. I, I think that that ultimately will come home to roost. And and again, I highly commend to our listeners Field of Schemes, a, a blog and book because it really kind of gets into the nitty gritty. And and it's a story that goes. You know, we see it in Buffalo now. We see it with going on with the the hockey team in in Phoenix or Glendale or you know, pick your. Pick your region, right? It just goes and on and on and on. All these things, renovations, etc. But I guess I'm 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 just guessing here. I'm guessing that part of the bitterness was a commodus was a, 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 a save the whalers kind of campaign, right? I need eleven thousand or eleven thousand five hundred season ticket sales, and that that was sort of part of the last couple of years of the Hartford sort of experience. And I guess depending on who you ask, and you may have a more objective understanding of this. They they either came close or they met that goal, and yet they still moved. And I guess that's where the hey that the state isn't going to play with taxpayer money for us to get a, a decent arena. So why bother going through these exercises? It's interesting because, like I said, Carmanos and the team, and, and you, I talked to Kevin Deneen, I talked to other people who were on that that Whalers team the last year, and they feel they were kicked out. And they they used that term. They said the governor kicked us out. And I was like, I didn't understand it. So I talked to Carmanos and I asked him about it. Like, what do you, what do you guys mean when you say they kicked you out? So the way Carmanos tells it is they had a meeting, they had an emergency meeting at the governor's mansion, John Rowland mansion. Gary Bevan was there and John Rowland was there and Carmanos obviously was there. And they say, you know, look, don't say we need it. We need a new arena or the team will move. And then the first question was, does the team need to move if there's not a new arena? And Roland says yes. So they perceive that as that as the governor is kicking us out, and that's when Carmanos really started to try to get out, and and all of that. But but also the fact, you know, the the point is there was no there was not stability in Hartford, and there was not going to be stability in Hartford without a new arena. And 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 you can't really dispute that because. Again, the state had been so leveraged. I mean, unless the state was going to cede all of the, the, the alternate revenue streams that they had already gotten, and they, they were contractually able to do that. So they were, you know, taking all that, that revenue. And it's, there, there is, that, I mean, so there is some that, that perception of he's a liar. And there is that perception of he came here to move the team. He's not, he's not from Connecticut. He's not even from the Northeast. He's from Detroit. Um, and there is, you know, Jeff Jacobs, the great uh, columnist in Connecticut who covered the team uh, for the Hartford Current, there is some pettiness there. Je- Jeff told me that, and it, if you look up the last year's attendance for the Whalers, it'll say 13,700, about 13,700 fans average per game. The number of fans for all those tickets or, or for the capacity was more than that. It was over 14,000, 14,556 if memory serves, or it might've been 15,000. 
Uh, but it was about 15,000. But the point is that Carmanos didn't count the luxury box tickets sold because he didn't recoup the revenue on it because the, all that luxury box money went to the state because Gordon had so leveraged, uh, had been so leveraged that that's what he negotiated. So Carmanos didn't count those, that attendance the last year. And I mean, it, it's stuff like that, that I think rubs people the wrong way when, and, and again, Carmanos is a fiery guy. He's very emotional. He's very passionate. He, he says he tried to make it work. He says the economics were, were like I said before, that he was competing against, the Giants and the Patriots and the Yankees. And it seemed like everywhere he turned, he couldn't get, he couldn't get anything. You know, he couldn't get the cable TV deal because it had already been negotiated. He couldn't get the new arena. And, and, but, but it's, it's sad because I spoke with a, uh, a government official who was the speaker of the house in Connecticut, Tom Ritter. And he said at the very end of the deal, they were $3 million apart. And because the governor said he didn't want to, he didn't want to, he, his, the governor Roland wanted a tax on the tickets. He wanted a, a percentage ta- tax on each ticket sold, and Carmanos wouldn't do it. And Roland didn't want to raise taxes to build a new arena because he had run on the promise of no, no new state income tax. And he wanted a re- the, and the, the state government wanted quote unquote a revenue neutral deal. So they didn't want to shell out more than they were going to take in because to your point, it is a, you know, it's a scam. You know, you look at the places that have not been willing to put out money and they tend to have, you know, better schools, better roads, better infrastructure, um, you know, as opposed to other parts of the country, which well, I, I'll use Atlanta as an example, you know, is on its second, third baseball stadium in the past, what, 20, seven years. So, um, and, and all, or all the taxpayer funded, you know, across the country, you, you alluded to it. It's, it's true that Connecticut was not going to build Peter Carmanos an arena, just throw, throw money at it, um, that, that it didn't have, it wasn't going to take money from schools. It wasn't going to take money from, from other, you know, more pressing and more important things. It didn't matter that much to the state. But the the sad part is that Tom Ritter, the Speaker of the House at the time, said that they were the, the the three million they were apart three million dollars in the deal, and the money was going to come in anyway on on income tax. So why did the deal fall apart? The deal fell apart in Carmanos's mind because Roland kicked them out, and because he said they needed a new arena or they'd have to go, and they couldn't agree on a new arena. All right. Well, two 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 last questions then as, as to, to round it because frankly, folks, you got to buy the book, okay? Because this is this is this is the level of granularity and, and detailed reporting uh, that, that that Pat has done in the uh, in this book. So let me ask you this: How much or how little do you think Gary Bettman had uh, in as a role in, shall we say, facilitating Hartford's move? At, at least out of town, if not to ultimately Raleigh and, and the Carolina region specifically, was he was he was he aiding and abetting this? I mean, to once you know it, it was kind of uh, you know determined by Carmanus that he was he was he was on the way out. I mean, was was he greasing the skids, Bettman? You know, I tried to get that answer, and and I or I was trying I was trying to get that same. I was trying to figure that out myself because that's that's the thought, right? 
Batman comes in and then all these teams move out. Right. And he, and that's his, his grand plan. No, I, I would say no. Um, that, that Batman was not as influential as people may make him seem. Um, cause mostly because he was pretty new at the, at the whole, uh, game still. He had come over from the NBA in 1993 and, but it, the NHL had a plan to move South in the United States anyway. And they were going to do it by expansion for the most part. Um, you know, you look at the teams that cropped up. It was Anaheim was in the early 90s. It was San Jose was in the early 90s. It was Tampa. And, and, and there's, there's stories about all these teams because this is a big, you know, the sun, the sun Belt shift was a huge, um, di- uh, it was, a, it was a, uh, a, di- a huge dynamic shift um, and a paradigm shift for hockey because you look at what's happened since. Um, and, the, and I think that's part of the fascination of why I read the book was because I saw the, the Hurricanes win the Stanley cup. And I knew they were the whalers, you know, in less than 10 years, they had won the Stanley cup and, you know, five years prior, they had bond of the cup final. So, um, but, but I I was alluding to this earlier that it piqued my interest in the the story and the get from the get go, because, you know, I was a big fan of the devils in the growing up. And I remember they, there was all the rumors about them going to Nashville the year they won the Stanley, the first Stanley cup. And I remember I was heartbroken. I remember hearing, uh, you know, it, it sort of looms over the, the, the run to the cup. And my, my own belief, and I don't know this to be true, but my own belief is that if the Devils didn't win the Stanley Cup, they would, they would be in Nashville because um, no team that's won the Stanley Cup has moved. The original Ottawa Senators, it's in the book. I, I, don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I believe it was the original Ottawa Senators that won the that was the last team to win the Stanley Cup and then move. So the, the NHL doesn't move championship teams. Not like the NFL. It's not like the NBA where, where all these old teams move, where, that, where it doesn't matter who you are or what your organization is. But, but, but the point about Batman is that the whole move south predates him. So I would say, no, Batman probably did not. I would say Batman probably did not advocate to have his t- a, a team in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, because these were things that were, that were planning anyway. Because once they got out of the Johns, you know, it all started in the, in the 90s. They had a vision for the 90s. They wanted to, to max out TV and they wanted to get, you know, new markets. And you look at some of the places where Wayne Gretzky toured and, and Mario Lemieux toured and the Rangers played some games. They played the Kings in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace outdoors in 1991 in the preseason. They went on the barnstorming tour in the preseason where they played in Miami, where they played in Phoenix, where they played in Sacramento. They had the 93, 94 season where they had the, the, uh, the, um, the neutral site games in places like Cleveland and Sacramento and Phoenix in Milwaukee to sort of assess what markets were worth expanding to. And I don't, so I don't think Batman, I don't, I would not label him the villain in this regard. I think the economics of hockey really just changed. And, it was a point, and it's it's ironic because if or if the Whalers had weathered the storm, you know, pardon the pun, had weathered the storm of the '90s and gotten to the other side of of the revenue sharing, salary cap, um, higher TV money uh, days of today, they could not only play, they could thrive. And you look at the Penguins went through that, and the Sabers went through that. And they were bankrupt, and they were going to Kansas City. Both of them are, you know, one of them was was destined for there. 
but um, unfortunately, the, the three WHA teams didn't didn't last for whatever reason. But um, but no, I would say the, the the whole paradigm shift really predates Batman. I don't think he's the, quite the villain that people would label him as. Although Gary Batman started to lean into being a villain, so um, <laughs> apparently call him what, whatever you you want. But um, but I would say no, you know pardon the you know long winded answer. I would say no in terms of Gary Batman's uh, and his influence on getting that team out of Harvard. All right. So somewhat related, and, and this is kind of a question we tend to ask uh, folks for uh, situations with teams that were previously domiciled uh, and, and even a whole cloth, completely different sort of brand identities and all that. And that, and the Hartford whalers now, you know, Carolina hurricanes, right. Certainly qualifies for this. Right. Um, and it, it gets back to sort of what I hinted at earlier, right. Is sort of how, uh, all of a sudden, seemingly over the last couple of years, even um, the hurricanes have leaned in uh, and some suddenly have remembered that there was a team called the Hartford Whalers. And oh, by the way, it just happens to be in our uh, in our attic, right, of family uh, heirlooms. Um, I guess the question in there is where in your mind uh, does the Hartford Whalers franchise kind of live and the history of it and all the records and artifacts. Is it the official place that is the history of the NHL and the team in Carolina or would people sort of in the Hartford area, those who remember and those who still, uh, you know, lament its passing and, and uh, you know, revere its memories do you think it kind of really psychically really maybe still lives in Hartford and maybe still hangs from the rafters of the XL center somehow? Um, there's a question in there somewhere. What of the previous version of this franchise? It, it feels hollow to me when uh, there's a retro Jersey uh, in Carolina, when it truly has nothing to do with Hartford. And frankly, I think most people in Hartford push back on, on that franchise, even claiming some relationship to Hartford. I was thinking about that today. I was thinking about this today because I was trying to figure, because there's, there's, there's a definite psychology, uh, you know, for, for anyone looking for a, a, a thesis or a, a, a psychology um, to explore, there's definitely some bizarre mental behaviors happening where you look at people in Connecticut are Hartford are in 2021. They are Hartford Whalers fans. And how does that jive? You know, this team's about to be 25 years outside of the NHL and not, did, you know, will not exist for, it will have not existed for 25 years um, on April 13th, 2022. And the people in Hartford are going to celebrate it and they're going to celebrate the team. And so obviously Peter Carmanos wanted no part of the Whalers brand. Tom Dundon wanted a big part of the Whalers brand. I think it is a, I think it's just one more unique element of the story because the fact that the team in Hartford that doesn't exist is more popular than the team that is brand wise on the ice or, or certainly when they pulled the Whalers Jersey out of the, the like to use your, your pot, your uh, analogy to, they pulled it out of the, the attic. You know, the people in Carolina told me straight up, they said, we were have, we were not branding. We were not a brand. 
in the NHL that we had to lean into this. And Tom Dundon bought the team and Carmanos wouldn't obviously be, I said, you know, he hates Hartford. And he, he told me straight up, he didn't like seeing the Whalers jersey on the ice. And I'm sure there's bitterness there for that, but they, they needed it. They, they had been out of the playoffs 10 years and they felt they needed a marquee night to grab the attention of the NHL. And they did it on December 23rd, 2018. And John Forslund, who I was fortunate enough to speak with for the book, who, you know, the great voice now of the Seattle Kraken and the, you know, who called games in Hartford, who called games in Carolina, um, said they did it right. And Mike Rogers was there. He said they did it right. And, and it was, it was, but at the same time, to your point, I, I tend to think the Hartford Whalers somehow live just in hockey fans in general, because they, you know, whatever your rationale for putting on a Whalers hat, for putting on a Whalers jersey, for putting on a Whalers t-shirt, for, you know, blaring Brass Bonanza, also known as Evening Beat, uh, is the official title of the song by uh, Jacques Say. Um, it's a, um, you know, you're, you're doing it for a nostalgic element. And I think that's where the Whalers will live, at, you know, assuming they're not going to come back to, to play in the NHL. I would say, you know, and that's what I think the people in Hartford want. And that's where I think, you know, I was thinking about it today, that the psychology of this is that, and, and it's the alumni. I mentioned the alumni, the high-profile alumni, guys like Kevin Deneen, guys like Ron Francis, guys like Joel Quinville. They met their spouses in Connecticut playing for the Whalers. Um, so Connecticut will always be special to them, and Hartford will always be special to them, and it will always be unique to them. And they'll go back, and they'll go back as a group. They still go back. They all get together. The alumni on, on the mid – I alluded to it a little bit, but the mid-'80s alumni are among – they're extremely close-knit. Denis coached under Quenville. Uh, Samuels, Ulf Samuelson was a coach when Ron Francis was the GM in Hart, uh, Carolina. So there, but there's de- so there's definite ties from Hartford to Carolina. And, the, you know, Ronnie lived – Ron Francis lived in Raleigh. Until he, you know, until the the he became the Kraken's first GM. So I, I think, but I think is that the people in in Connecticut just don't want the Whalers to be forgotten, and I think that's what that's what their effort is. And I think you know the, the Booster Club goes to an NHL game every year. They had the Booster Club in Hartford had a special relationship with the players because the players were part of the community. And the ones that wanted to be there in, the, in those heydays in the mid eighties, they wanted to be in Hartford. They, as much as they, you know, they weren't, it wasn't just a stop on the map. It wasn't just, you know, the, the, the pit stop between New York and Boston. There were some really, really good teams there and really, really close knit teams. And so if you hear Joel Quenville talk about why he loves Hartford, he met his wife there. He met his, you know, he made lots of great friends there. He and I think that's where the, the the Whalers will live. It's in the stories, in the high-profile alumni, in the jersey, in the kitsch, and I think that's what the people of Connecticut, just like I said, just want. They don't want their team to be forgotten. They don't want it to become the Cleveland Barons or the Kansas City Scouts or or the Atlanta Thrashers or or any of these teams that came before that moved that are you know that are essentially forgotten. And I think I think that's why. My story, fortunately for me, you know, resonates with all these people because um, they, you know, Hartford, the people in the Hartford area, you know, they might support teams in Boston. They might support teams in New York. 
but Hartford is their, is their place, you know, um, my dad, not to bring this, make this all about me, but my dad always, um, we, we grew up in New Jersey. We went, we rooted for New York teams. Mostly we, you know, we went to for days in the city. We were very close to New York and, but my dad was very proud to say he was from New Jersey and he would always tell everywhere, wherever we'd go, we were from New Jersey because we were not from New York. We were from New Jersey. And I think there's a level of loyalty and level of that in, in the people of Connecticut and the people of Hartford and the people of the whalers, um, you know, Connecticut might be a little stuck up. It might be a little bit, again, trying to be New York, trying to be Boston. There's definitely elements of that where the people, in, and I wrote this in the book, that the people, there's, there's some that don't identify with the state. They'd rather go to the Cape Cod beaches. They'd rather go to the city, New York City. They'd rather, um, you know, but, but live in Connecticut for the schools and the land. And, you know, so they don't have to live the city life. But there's definitely people in, in central Connecticut in the Hartford region who love to be from the central Connecticut region. They don't care if it's, if you think it's small potatoes and small market or minor league, they want to, they're from Hartford and they're proud to be from or Glastonbury or Weathersfield or, or Farmington or any, or sat or Windsor or wherever, you know, they're making their living. They're making their lives in Connecticut and the Hartford whalers were their favorite team are, is their favorite team. And they, the uniqueness of it, I think lends itself to, that belief system and that it's okay for them to be a Hartford Whalers team fan. Like if, if there are Atlanta Thrasher fans out there, I'm sure there are, there might be some listening. I, you know, I apologize for saying this, but um, you know, people are not pining for the Atlanta Thrashers. People are not pining for the Cleveland Barons. People are not pining for, for the, the, the California seals. I mean, their merchandise sells, don't get me wrong, but, um, but there's something special about the Hartford Whalers and it's the people who still, who fight, and do everything they can to just keep the memory of the team alive. And I, I, I think that's where the team lives and the team will continue to live. And, and I'm just happy to be a part of it. Ah, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I appreciate Pat and uh, the conversation and the whalers, uh, a story that continues uh, luckily to to live on and uh, and endure. And uh, the book, you must get, run, don't walk, uh, to your internet computer, whatever it is you're going to use to order this book, go to your local bookseller, whatever, and find The Whalers, The Rise, Fall, and Enduring Mystique of New England's second greatest NHL franchise. By our guest this week, Pat Pickens, it is published by Lions Press, and it is available wherever you find good books. Uh, of course, you can find a, a convenient link to Amazon to get it probably in the fastest way humanly possible. Uh, just go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 235, my goodness, with Pat Pickens. And you will see a convenient link to the book to Amazon from our site. We'll get a couple of uh, referral shekels of, of love and goodness. We appreciate you doing it that way. And... Um, but even if you can't or you don't uh, support your local bookseller or whatever, just get get a, get your hands on the copy of this book because uh, you're going to regale in all the great uh, glory, detail, mystique. Uh, and and it's, it's a story uh, long overdue uh, to have uh, in book form. And um, uh, you will be, uh, as they say, glad you did. You can follow uh, Pat Pickens uh, on Twitter at Pat underscore Pickens, P-I-C-K-E-N-S, Pat underscore Pickens on 
Twitter. Uh, and um, let's see, while you're on our website, you'll find our social media uh, links as well. Uh, again, goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's our website. Uh, our social media feeds are as follows. You can follow us on Twitter, probably our most active platform, at goodseatsstill. Uh, on Instagram, we post once a day there. You'll see uh, us at goodseatsstillavailable. Uh, on Facebook, we publish a couple of times a day there as well. Uh, although I will tell you, we are starting to get a little uh, tired of Facebook and we may not be there for too much longer, but we'll see. But for now, you'll find us a good seat still available there as well. If you'd like to send us some email, you can do so, please, by all means. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, if you'd like our little weekly email newsletter to get a little tip sheet on what we're going to be talking about uh, each coming week, uh, just go to goodseatsstillavailable.com and tool around in the, I don't know, contact us. There's a section in there somewhere where you can get, uh, just get your get your name added to our email newsletter uh, list. Just your name and your email address is all we need. Nothing else, nothing personal. And uh, boom, you'll be uh, whisked away to uh, a, uh, a, a wonderful place on our mailing list. What else? Uh, how about Jerry Payne? What about him? He's a great guy. And uh, he's also the... Uh, the chief reason that we get this show on the air every week. Uh, he's uh, the producer. Uh, he puts all of our pieces together. We appreciate his efforts as always. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence, thank you, kind sir, uh, for your efforts this week and every week. And uh, what else? Uh, rate and review us, will you please? Uh, if you're not following us or subscribing to us, uh, you got to do that, of course. But then rate and review us, why not? And tell your friends and they'll tell two friends and so on and so on. And that's how we grow the audience, uh, help our algorithms out there. We're, we're available on every podcast platform you can find. And uh, we appreciate your listenership for sure. Now, we're, of course, going to end with uh, a tune. We have to. This is uh, Hartford Whalers uh, reminiscences, of course. Yeah, yes, we have uh, used the Brass Bonanza theme on multiple episode occasions. Uh, but we thought we'd mix it up a little bit. And the Internet is just, yeah, and YouTube in particular, is just... You know, you kids today, you have no idea just how lucky you have it. But we have found a wonderful clip, and we're going to leave you with Brass Bonanza, but done in a very interesting way. It is done, but it's a this is a collaboration. You're going to hear this uh, from an, a group called Sonata, the Sports Organist Network and Trade Association. Yes, there's such a thing. This is a group, a collective of women and men who are the official organists for NHL, Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, etc. franchises. And they did a little something back in uh, the uh, the winter of 2019 where they all got together and they did this uh, uh, sort of collaboration of Brass Bonanza from their own respective organs in their own respective arenas. So here we're going to send you out with Brass Bonanza the Hartford Whalers official theme song, but done collectively by a whole host of folks uh, who are organists for the Colorado Avalanche, the Washington Capitals, the Jersey Devils and Brooklyn Nets, the St. Louis Blues, the Anaheim Ducks, et cetera, et cetera. This is a who's who of organists uh, in professional arenas uh, that you may have heard and continue to enjoy. And let's send you out with their rendition, their collective rendition, a brass bonanza in our salute to the Hartford Whalers. Thank you for listening. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. Ta-ta. Ta-ta.